0: Truth. I don't know the way. I don't know what to think. I don't know what to say. Yeah, but that's okay. Right. Yeah, but right. welcome to Factually. I'm Adam Conover. Thank you so much for listening. You know, if you are a fan of what i do if you if you if you're aware of me at all frankly i don't think this will come as a surprise to you i enjoy playing video games is that <laughs> was that clear from my voice and face and general personality. I enjoy playing them. I loved them as a kid. I play them now. I happen to think that they are one of the most interesting new art forms we have as a species. There are incredible things being done in video games, new interactions that we have between us, the experiencer and the artists who made the game. If, if you're not playing video games, I, I happen to think you're missing out on one of the most interesting cultural products that we have going right now. The products of the video game industry continue to impress and delight. And by the way, they are massive. The video game industry in 2020 grossed around $180 billion for perspective that's larger than the film industry and the sports industry in North America combined. We think of both film and sports as being much more mass market than video games, yet video games are making so much more money. By any measure, this is one of the most important cultural products we have in this day and age. It's no wonder that for many people, especially the generations who grew up playing video games, working in the video game industry sounds like a dream job. Wow, could anything be better? What do you do, just play games all day? <laughs> it must be fun. Well, the reality of working in the video game industry is much more of a waking nightmare. See, as far as white-collar office work goes, video game studios are about as grueling and oppressive of a work environment as it gets. For instance, there's a practice called crunch under which people working at some of the largest video game studios in the world on some of the biggest games like Red Dead Redemption 2 or Cyberpunk have to work 80 hour weeks or more for months on end in order to push a project out the door, resulting in burnout, bad health outcomes and, you know, the destruction of these people's relationships with their families and children. Even after a game is released, updates and DLC might require workers to continue putting in egregious hours with no end in sight. And even though the video game industry makes so much money, the financing for even successful studios is incredibly precarious. There have been cases in which a studio, these are the people who make the game, immediately after releasing a game that sold well, that was a success, the studio will go out of business and lay everyone off because they simply can't keep bringing enough money in the door to keep people employed. That is how messed up the economics of this industry are. Oh, and by the way, the industry as a workplace is also rife with sexual harassment and racial discrimination. Riot Games, which makes the incredibly popular game League of Legends, is well known for allowing a sexist workplace culture to thrive. And one of its executives was pushed out last year after blaming George Floyd for his own death on Facebook. So uh, not a great workplace uh, in general there. And one of the reasons that this massive industry has gotten away with being so shitty for so long is that for many years, much of the gaming press didn't actually cover it. Instead, they'd cover things like what new games are out, you know, uh, strategies for how to be better at them, or they would do consumer focused reporting like, you know, whether gamers were getting their money's worth from the game, that sort of thing. And there's a place for all that coverage. I love that coverage. I've read it for years. But in recent years, we've seen more and more real journalism about what is going on behind the scenes in the video game industry Well, today on the show, I am so proud to say that we have a reporter who is at the forefront of that movement, who takes a more in-depth and critical view of the gaming industry that he and I both love so much. His name is Jason Schreier, and he is one of the most respected voices in games journalism. He wrote for many years at the site Kotaku, and he is currently a reporter for Bloomberg News and the author of the new book, Press Reset, Ruin and Recovery in the Video Game Industry. Please welcome Jason Schreier. Jason, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Adam. It is a pleasure. So you are a uh, video game reporter, journalist. Tell me a little bit about what you do, first of all, because I think you kind of have a unique job in the world of games media or media in general. There aren't a lot of people who do what you do.
1: Yeah, it's been fun. It's like whenever I introduce myself to people, um, I say I'm a journalist and they're like, oh, do you like, what do you do? What do you cover? And I'm like, the weird, wild world of video games. And I either get like one of two reactions, either like, oh, my God, that is so cool. Or this look that is like, what? Who, who are you? Like, <laughs> are those for kids? But yeah, no, I've been doing this for a long time. I've been, um, I spent uh, a long time, I spent a couple years freelancing, working for sites like Wired and then... Got a job at Kotaku, um, which, which is the gaming site that used to be part of Gawker Media and now I was part of Go Media. And I was there for about eight years, a little over eight years. And now I work for Bloomberg News, where I cover the video game industry. And um, nowadays I'm covering kind of like the businessy sides of things and the cultural sides of things. And um, yeah, there's a lot to write about. Games are, are big these days, as you know. <laughs> yeah. you, are, you are also a big video game fan.
0: I am. I am. That's why I'm very
1: excited to have you here.
0: Uh, But, you know, I think just to put an even finer point on this, when even someone like myself who reads a lot of games, media thinks about video game journalism, we think about like, okay, here, a new monster just came out in Monster Hunter Rise, and here's how to kill him, like that <laughs> uh-huh. sort of writing. Or like, here's a new game that's going to come out. It looks really good. The trailer just dropped. Um, here's what fans are reacting, things like that. You, though, uh, not to besmirch that kind of writing, because that's great, and that's what I enjoy reading, that stuff as a video mm-hmm. game fan, um, but you uh, do... I would say more on the ground reporting about labor issues in video games, about uh, you know trying to get a sense of what's going on internally at different game studios, that sort of thing, correct.
1: Yeah, something I've been trying to do um, over the past however many years um, is kind of shed some insight on what happens behind the scenes and and tell some of the stories that game companies don't necessarily want told. Um, talk to people, give people kind of a voice, give people a platform to tell their stories from from within game companies because they're actually, and and um, maybe not everybody knows this, but the games industry, despite being incredibly humongous and lucrative, has this darker side to it. Um, And it faces a lot of issues. Mm -hmm. It deals with a lot of problems that I don't think that game companies like EA and Activision are eager to talk about. Um, Some of the things that I've written about over the years are um, like sexual misconduct at game companies or um, uh, something that's called Crunch, which is an epidemic in the video game world that is essentially excessive, unpaid overtime that lasts for weeks or months or sometimes even years on end. Um, And yeah, one of the, the things that I've been kind of focusing on most recently is the volatility in the video game industry and how kind of fickle it is and how tough it is to stay employed in games, which is um, actually what I just wrote a, a book about that is that is about to be published called Press Reset, written in Recovery in the Video Game Industry, which is about like the, the kind of, uh, turbulence uh, that comes with having a career in video games and how you probably won't stay at the same company for more than a couple of years before a mass layoff mm. hits or a studio shutdown hits and suddenly you are finding yourself moving somewhere else, moving across the world 3,000 miles to find your new job. And all of this stuff kind of in aggregate has created a lot of problems for the games industry that I um, like to talk about and make sure that more people are talking about. and trying, try, I try to get the conversations started as much as possible about a lot of this stuff
0: yeah i mean your last book uh was fantastic it was called blood sweat and pixels and it was about uh different studios the the stories behind the creations of different games from you know indie developers like you know one person bands who made an entire game themselves to, to great big developers but why yeah why write a second book was it to get capture that angle of the volatility
1: yeah, well so with the first book which um yes I'm very glad you enjoyed your quote is on on the cover still very proud of your the, <laughs> okay, the, the well, great quote on, you listen. gave. Now this
0: sounds like I'm I'm I have a conflict of interest. Uh-oh. Uh <laughs> I do have Oh my gosh. I do know but have a full quote Well it's on not the like we the paid you sent
1: it to me and I enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's not like we paid you. I should be very clear here. It's not like we paid you for a quote or anything. You I was just like, Hey Adam, I think you would enjoy this and you're like, Yeah, I enjoyed it. Um I give I gave quotes to a couple of books and I don't feel like it's a conflict of interest. But anyway, yeah, I, I enjoyed writing that. <laughs> Um one of my kind of takeaways after that book was like, Okay, um, I wanna write something else. I was trying to figure out what I was gonna do next. I had a couple of false starts. Um, and eventually I landed on this question of like, so everything I do, I like to I like to think of reporting as like every good story starts with a question, um, an interesting question of some sort. And with the first book with Budswin Pixels, my question was, Why are video games so hard to make? Why is this this why are games such a like strange, like elusive art form? And what well, what is going on there? Why do people always talk about how difficult these things are to do? And I tried to answer that question through stories of how games were made. For the second book, I wanted to ask the question, why is it so hard to maintain a career in the video game industry? And I wanted to Mm. answer that question again through like stories, on the ground reporting, firsthand interviews with people. Um, And so what I did this time was I said, okay, I'm going to look at a bunch of case studies. I'm going to look at a bunch of um, stories of game studios shutting down. And I wanted to do a whole mix of them. I wanted to do everything from like 38 Studios, which is this glorious, extravagant company that was run by the former baseball player Kurt Schilling who completely mismanaged it and, and threw out all their money that they took from the state of Rhode Island so that's a whole big story um, from that to Irrational Games which were the makers of Bioshock, one of the most critically acclaimed games ever um, and they shut down just a year after releasing Bioshock Infinite which had like all these one awards and was critically acclaimed. So I yeah. wanted to figure out why are these studios shutting down even whether they're making failures, whether they're making successes, what happens to People when their studio shut down? How do they react? What do they do afterwards? How do they, what do, what do they do once they're in this kind of impossible situation? And how do they kind of rise up from that? Um, and so I went around and I found a bunch of different people who I found really interesting and tried to tell some of their stories in this book. Um, and there's stories in there of people who like go through a studio shutdown and then go on to uh, create an indie mega hit and they're doing really well for themselves and then there are stories mm-hmm. about people who who after a studio shut down say you know what this video game industry is not working for me I'm going to go somewhere else where they actually treat workers with respect and pay us better and give us stability and don't make us crunch and so there are people who do that as well and yeah what I found over the course of reporting this book is that like it's really an epidemic problem and the kind of conclusion that you hear yeah. from all of these game developers is some Something needs to change. Um, and then what I did at the end of the book was I started exploring some ways in which some solutions to these problems, some ways in which the video game industry can change and um, kind of Tackle these demons and, and try to figure out, Hey, there's all this money here. Maybe we can, uh, support our workers. Maybe we can face this, these crises and not yeah. let this brain drain keep happening and not keep <laughs> losing people to burnout and stuff. So yeah, it's been, it's been quite an experience. Um, the book is, is, is kind of, it's a little bit dismal, I would say, but it's not like totally bleak. There's a lot of optimism <laughs> in the book, I think, even though it sounds like, like it's about studio shutdowns, yeah. but, but there's a lot of like, uh, uh I, I think what people will, people will read this book and I think come away from it thinking, okay, things can get better. There is like, there are paths forward. There are paths out of this. Um, yeah. It's just that things happen to be a little dark right now.
0: Well, let's, let's talk about, let's talk about it. I mean, first of all, even if you're. Your work is dismal. I wouldn't use that word, but it—you <laughs> know—you're pulling back the curtain on something that we normally don't get to see, right? Because so much of, again, any writing about video games is about, hey, here are the new features, here are the new maps, here's the new, et cetera. Um, and you know, in the entertainment industry generally, not just video games, but in my piece of the entertainment industry, like there's a there's also a, a dearth of journalism. Generally, most of the most of the press is about those, hey, what new movie came out? Not, hey, here's what happened behind the scenes of this movie. Like plenty of reviews about why the last Star Wars movie was bad, right? But where was the story, go, story going? What the fuck happened with that <laughs> Star Wars movie? Like what the hell happened to Disney that made them go from the great success they were having to, you know, the, like, it, the, you know, what, what were the pressures? What were the institutional mistakes? What were the, all these sorts of things. Um, and so that's what, the, that's what makes it fascinating to read your work. Um, but also, like, it really points to a uh Like a malaise over this massive industry. Like I think you know, we don't often appreciate the video game industry is massive, larger than the movie industry, um at least by some measures. I don't know off the top of my head, but I've seen plenty of statistics over 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 my life about how how much money the the industry makes, um mm-hmm. enjoyed by untold millions of people around the world. You know, these games make enormous amounts of money, yet. The finances of the industry, both the for the companies and the workers, are completely tenuous. Like what if, you know, a big movie came out? It was a big blockbuster uh you know the, the new avengers movie comes out and then a year later marvel studios shuts down cuz they don't have any money and they mm-hmm. say we we actually became unprofitable we we are shutting down, the, down down the whole studio and what if everybody who worked on the movie retired from the industry at age of twi- at the age, age of 28 because they couldn't stand to work in the industry anymore and they all had horror stories saying oh my god working on avengers like it almost killed me i didn't see my kids for 5 years like That would be weird. Yet that is the state of that's the status quo in the video game industry. Uh, And I want to talk about some of the specifics of those stories. But do you have any sense of why that is like what is it about the video game industry that causes it to be that way?
1: Yeah, um, the newness of it. Last I checked, $180 billion in revenue is the, the big stat in the video game industry, which is nuts. Um, yeah, I, I, I it's a great question. And I think the newness of, of it is one big answer. Um, as you said, I, I, the games industry really, really the modern video game industry that we know it today started in the 1980s. So it's about 40 years old, um, which is very, very young mm-hmm. compared to Hollywood or really anything else. It's, it's definitely the youngest. Yeah. Um, considering how much money it brings in, it's, it's an extremely young industry and it's still what, what kind of. And like
0: compared to compared to film we're in like the 50s kind yeah, of exactly. in terms of yeah. video
1: games yeah, yeah. And I think that like as a result of that, I mean, there are a number of things. First of all, if you look at like how things have changed since like the nineties when it was literally like people living in these like frat house environments making games, things have evolved in some good ways and become more professionalized and progressive um, in a lot of ways. But the big thing that hasn't happened yet is there are no unions in the video game industry, at least in Mm -hmm. North America. There's some in Europe where they're, they're more union friendly countries. There's some, but in, in the US, Canada, the North American video game industry, there are no unions. Um, and that makes a huge difference between that uh, this world and Hollywood, where everybody's unionized and there are a lot of protections in place for workers. Um, there are a lot of other big differences, one of which being that in Hollywood, um, most of it, most of that world, most of your world, is in Los Angeles. So if mm-hmm. you lose your job as a writer, or if you're bouncing from job between jobs as a writer, um, in film, in TV, you can pretty easily, well, not easily, but but you don't have to move anywhere if you want to find new yeah. jobs. You just stay in Hollywood. Maybe you you have an office in Santa Monica. Maybe your next office is in Burbank, whatever. But you're always in the same place. In That's, games, in fact, how most people work. You go exactly. from job to job. I mean, I
0: was in this writer's room. I was in that writer's room. I didn't work for three months. and Then I got a new gig. And then oh, I got lucky and sold something. Mm-hmm. But I, I was in Burbank. I was in Santa Monica. But the whole time I lived
1: in L.A. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Exactly. And in games, it's very different because in games, even though there are a few hubs where like there's a cluster of game companies here la is one of them um seattle is another it's very spread out there are game companies all over the place and there's no like one central area where you go and you know okay if i am pursuing my career in video games this is where i'm going and Mm. something that i explore in the book and it's actually um Wild timing because I explored that. Okay. Um, one possible solution here is if people, uh, if we can't solve the problem of like volatility, and maybe we can, maybe we can't. I don't know. There are a lot of questions there. But let's say, hypothetically, we cannot solve the problem. We cannot solve the problem of a company potentially running out of money and shutting, having to shut down. What we could solve potentially is the problem of forcing those workers that, to then have to move 3,000 miles every time they want a new gig by creating more of a remote friendly environment in the video game industry because mm-hmm. in the past people have been very very anti-remote work it was always like you have to be in the office have to be in the office then just as I was finishing this book uh, <laughs> we started hearing about something called COVID-19 and suddenly <laughs> for the last year everyone's been working remotely so it's fascinating yeah. to see like Uh, And so this is something I I got. I actually had a chance to like put in some stuff in the book about like the future of remote work and like what that'll look like. Because I think that alone could change so much for the video game industry. If I'm in Boston working at Irrational Games and suddenly I get a call, I, I get called into an all hands meeting and I found out that I find out that Irrational is shutting down. Um, but there are no other game studios in Boston. So I can either like uproot my family and move, pull my kids out of school and move to LA or San Francisco or whatever or mm-hmm. i could quit the video game industry and go find something else to do. Now, there could potentially be a third option, which is i find a job in in Santa Monica, but i work remotely, so i don't actually yeah. have to uproot my life. And that alone, something that simple could really change everything for the video game industry and make it so much more accommodating to so many people. Um so yeah, we'll we'll see. It's interesting times. But that just solves
0: one problem uh, yeah. that people have, which is the, you know, losing a gig and then having to move. The mm-hmm. problem, though, is much bigger that like top to bottom working conditions are very, very difficult. Yeah. So let's just let's talk about it this way. Um, I have a, uh, I have a family member and my extended family who's, uh, you know, says, hey, I think I want to go into video games. And, you know, I, I was telling talking to him about it and it, being a little bit of a student of the industry. Having read your book, I recommended him your last book to read. Um, but I also knew enough to tell him, you know, he's like, oh my God, that's my dream job. And I'm like, okay, well, careful <laughs> because that's how we all perceive it. That's what people think. You know, his, his relatives are like, oh yeah, that's unrealistic. You could never be so lucky as to get a job in video games. It's that's like a lottery ticket. And I'm like, well, hold, hold on a second. I think we all have a misunderstanding culturally of what this is. It's mm-hmm. actually be careful what you wish for. Um, so Tell me a little bit about like what is it like for you know the average person working on you know a big big game like uh, say a Cyberpunk which just came out or or say maybe a you know a, a large Blizzard or any EA EA game any you know trip the world of AAA what does that look like uh, for the average you know person working on it.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it really, uh, so first of all, I, I can kind of give a general description, but I should add the caveat here that it really varies depending on the company. Some companies are like, have a culture of crunch where they're all in like all the time and it's like you get dirty looks if you leave the office at 7 p.m. And then other companies are uh, try to do the opposite and try to create an atmosphere where like they have producers going around and telling people to go home. Um, so it really depends. And there are a lot of different like CD Projekt Red, the, the company behind Cyberpunk, as you brought up, um, is really known for its crunch culture and people have to work a lot of hours there. Whereas EA is actually, despite their kind of broader reputation in the gaming sphere, they actually are known for, um, at least within certain divisions of EA, they're known for, for trying to really create healthy atmosphere for mm. people. Um, but I think even, even the most healthy game companies, you're always going to have to face um, crunch and you're always going to have to deal with a lot of these issues that I've been talking about. Can you define um, because, crunch for us? Yeah, crunch crunch is 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 the game games industry colloquial term for excessive overtime and it's just like a period of of it's not just like an occasional night or weekend here it's a period of okay for the next eight weeks we are all working every saturday or for the next five months leading up to e3 we are all working every tuesday night and every thursday night or something like that It can take a bunch of different forms sometimes it's actually created kind of um uh it's never uh, sometimes it's not mandated it's not like someone says hey we're working late tonight it's more like you're expected to be there and available and like you you like I said you get dirty looks if you leave and everybody mm. else is there so it's like oh man I don't want to be the first to leave the office and it can take a lot of different forms but it is very common and it's not something that I, I think because of the nature of making games because games are so difficult to make for so many different reasons um, you eventually get to a point where you're like man we only have two months left to finish this game and we have a lot of work to do so we really need to give it our all and as it happens because so many people just like your was it a relative or your friend of a friend who, who relative, wants to get yeah. into, your relative who wants to get into games so many people see it as a dream job that they're like it's like this that capitalistic way of taking advantage of someone's uh, uh, desires mm-hmm. to like turn what they love into a living where like you are you almost you want to put in let's say you're 25 you just got your first job in the games industry you want to put everything you can into this game because it's awesome, and you're like, hey, I'm making video games for a living. I want to stay at the office till 10 p.m. Yeah, um, this is my
0: self-actualization. This is what I—I exactly. I, I was put on Earth to do. This I love. Exactly. This.
1: Yeah. yeah, and it's—it's—and you better believe that, like, people in management at these companies and the C-suite of these big publicly traded companies are very cognizant of that and, and very much rely on that sort of like mentality to to get games out the door. Um, and I think that like that's one of the reasons that the video game industry skews so. Young young is because people in their 20s like might live for that but then once you get into your 30s you're like hey I want to have a family I want to take control of my life I don't want to spend all day at work every day Um, then you're kind of like maybe games is not for me anymore and you just get kind of churned out by this Um, like I said there's some companies that are actively working to change this stuff there's some people that are actively working to change this stuff but it's very very difficult because of the nature of these things and because it can be so so much fun to to just, like, pour yourself into your work and uh, to be surrounded by people who are, like, putting in their all and just, like, yeah, like going, like, burning the candle on both ends. And everybody, everybody like, it, it becomes part of, like, you feel like you're on a team and you're all in this together. You're in the yeah. trenches is how a lot of game developers describe it. So, well- yeah, it's...
0: A lot of what you're describing too is like a good feeling and can be a good thing on a project. Putting a lot of work into a project is a great thing. Uh, Again, my own industry on my own television set, you know, we do long hours, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, I, I stay up late and work on scripts. I appreciate it when other people do the same thing. Uh, And, you know, say on a, on a TV set, you know, we often will work 12, 14 hour days for, Mm -hmm. you know, a week or two. But the difference is, We are doing that for a defined period of time. And we also have a union that's setting rules around those things that says, okay, you know, every six hours, you must provide a meal after people go home, you know, okay, they can work 12 hours. But then after that, they need a certain amount of time at home before they can come back. They need to be paid differently if they're being asked to work on a Saturday. There's all of these things around that that have built up around, you know, collective bargaining. <laughs> the the people who work on the set saying, okay, what do we and don't we find acceptable? So it's all like an agreement. Um, but what you're describing goes pretty far beyond that, like, I'm, I mean, there's, you know, sure, we got to work on a Saturday, I think a lot of people have had that experience. But when you're talking about everybody is being required to work 80 hour weeks for weeks or months on end with no end uh, in sight, no particular end, you know, no particular, we're going to stop at this date. Um, And that's just like the culture of it. And you'll be, you know, sort of socially or perhaps financially punished if you don't do it. Uh, it ends up being like bad for people's health even uh, is my understanding Uh, am I right about that?
1: Yeah I don't think you'll find many people who would complain about like a week or two of overtime of like putting in like everything you can at the very end of a project or something like that the problem is that yes A like you said it can be weeks it can be months on end Um, sometimes there is that kind of like end date and distance it could be like okay we're shipping in November we're releasing the game in November so we know we have to we have this hard stop of October 30th or whatever it is. Um, although sometimes a game will then get delayed, and the crunch will just continue even longer, which can also be really brutal. But um, the other part of this equation is that a lot of people in the games industry are on salary, and they're not getting paid for every hour they work. They might mm-hmm. get a bonus at the end of the project. They might get some paid time off at the end of the project to kind of make up for things. But often it is not nearly enough to make up to like compensate them for the number of hours that they are that they are working. Um, yeah, and they don't even get like so it's funny, there's been a lot of talk recently about overtime in the banking industry. I've seen a bunch of articles about like people at Goldman Sachs complaining about their hours and how they're all working crazy, crazy schedules. Um, But those people also get paid ridiculous amounts of money. We're talking like, like 200,000, like entry level, you're making these huge bonuses. You're making these huge Mm -hmm. salaries. Um, And that kind of like, maybe if you break it down into an hourly rate, it's not very impressive, but you're still getting kind of paid. And trust me, I'm not defending that world because it's crazy and, and horrible for people's mental health. <laughs> right. But but imagine that kind of schedule with like normal salaries, like salaries where you're not making Goldman Sachs money. Like you're lucky to break six figures if you have yeah. a bunch of experience in the industry. Most people are not making that kind of money unless they're the C-suite executives bringing in 30, $40 million a year, um, which is a whole nother thing that we could get into. But yeah, it's, it's, it's the type of culture that is like people are just, it just really chews through people. It burns people out and sometimes they don't even realize it. Sometimes they enjoy it. Like like you just described, it's like that. there's something, and I've done this too, it's exhilarating to like pull a, an all-nighter working on something you really care about, you're really into, you're like, man, what a rush to do this. But um, do that for enough time and suddenly you'll like, you wake up and you're like, oh my God, I'm so burnt out right now. Um, and that can really hit people, like especially towards, um, after they've yeah. been doing this, after they've been in the games industry for four or five years um, or longer they're just kind of like, man, like I'm really burnt out. So yeah, it can really it can really just add up
0: and the 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 thing that makes me mad about it when I think about it is that, like, okay, you know, I've been in a position as a manager of a creative project where I'm like, hey, guys, we got. Uh, we got a late network note or some, I fucked up, somebody fucked up. We're going to have to put in a little extra work here, you know, or we think it's for the good of the show. We're going to make a change and we're all going to, you know, have to stay up a little late working on this script and everyone says, okay. And we do it right. But there's a difference between that and the company planning to use this kind of overtime in order to complete the project. Like they're saying, Oh my God, guys, we're late getting this game Done. We really got to work hard now versus people going like, all right, we need to launch on this date. And well, if we just crunch everybody really hard, we can make it, you know, or like, you know, it's the thing of. The, the bosses in the C-suite, like you say, accepting an unrealistic deadline and pushing all of the, the burden of that onto their workers who are going to have to make up the difference. And then that works once and the game's a big hit and they make a lot of money and they're like, well, why don't we just do that every time? Mm-hmm. Like, "Uh oh, oopsies, got a crunch again. Like, is there that dynamic? Because that's what it looks like to me from the outside.
1: Oh yeah, 100%. Um, Some companies are just well-known for like building their schedule around crunch. And so when when people are building schedules in the video game industry, it's always based on just complete estimates and guesses. And one of the reasons that you'll see, and I'm sure you've noticed this, that pretty much every single game, not just during COVID, but all all throughout gaming history, every single game gets delayed at least once. Um, And that is because most schedules and most release date estimates are just complete guesses. But even, even with that in mind, there's a lot of just like... (laughs) Like, Uh, guaranteed enforced crunch built into schedules it's like okay we know we're hitting this point uh a month before the end of the project two months before the end of the project we know it's crunch time at some companies it's like even longer and Jesus. then what can also happen is sometimes it's not even insidious sometimes it's like with total total totally unintentional crunch and so here's an example let's say i'm an artist and i just started at my favorite game studio and i'm like oh man i'm so excited to work on my favorite game um, and someone says okay you have have, um, you have to do, you have to create this level. You have to draw this environment, whatever. Um, how long do you think it'll take you? And I'm like, um, it'll take me a week. And then I realize that actually to do it in a week, I'm going to have to work really long hours. And so I do that because I want to prove myself and I finish it in a week. Then my mm-hmm. boss thinks, "Oh, I Jason can do this thing in a week," even though I was like crunching and pushing myself to do it in a week. Suddenly, I'm expected to be able to deliver that exact thing in a week next time it's required. And so, it can it can really be this like self-perpetuating cycle where people just like really are pushing themselves to the limit. And it's really important, I think the only way to really combat that is for managers to really be looking around and producers really to be looking around and saying, "Hey, you need to go home, you need to stop working at 7pm, at no matter what you need to like, leave this office right now. And that can sometimes really be the only way to stop people who are really passionate and into their work from doing that sort of thing.
0: But some of it's coming from the top, right? Yeah, like definitely. the
1: manager, some of those
0: managers are not going to be able to look around and do that because they have their goals they have to hit too. And you know, I've seen. Uh, I, I'm sorry to compare it to my industry so much, right? No, but it's I was great. in a position once fas- I think I it's was, fascinating. It's really affected how I think about this. Um, like I, uh, you know, was in a position where. I was running a project that was, you know, I didn't determine the the delivery date or the amount of money or, or the scope of the project, right? That was agreed to by people above me. And they agreed to a delivery date and a scope and an amount of money for the project that I only realized afterwards was unreasonable. You know, they, they said, we can get it to you this date and it'll cost this much and it'll be this many episodes and it'll be this long and it'll look like this. And then when we got... All of those, you know, and they said, okay, Adam, will you, will you make this happen? I said, yes, I will. And then once we looked at all the numbers, we were like, oh, holy shit, this is like borderline impossible, Mm -hmm. right? And so all of the shit rolled downhill, to not just me, but everybody who worked under me. And they all had to work very long hours. It was extremely difficult it for, for everybody. Uh, and I looked around and I said, This is not ethical, right? Like I will never put people in this position again because I'm fucking furious at, you know, with the, the position that these people are in. But that decision wasn't mine, right? I was not in that position at that point in my career to say, no wait, we can't do this because it was being done by people above who didn't even know what they were doing to the people below them because they were negligent enough to not pay attention to like what they were putting their workers through. It seems like there's a lot of people in the video game industry. There's a lot of companies who
1: do or are compelled to take that bargain. Does that track for you? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's the type of thing where like not everybody is in a position to be able to turn down, like to have no. Not everybody has any leverage in and or in a negotiation like that. If you're an independent game studio head and someone presents you with like an unrealistic schedule, an unrealistic budget, but it's the only offer you have, and your other option is shutting down your studio, then you might be totally screwed. Same thing happens with the big publishers, where like sometimes if you're a studio head and you're negotiating for resources um, with a bunch of other studio mm-hmm. heads, sometimes it's- It's like the only way to like deal with the internal politicking and get what you want is to make those compromises with the devil. And yeah, much easier said than done. And I think that like ultimately um, what it comes down to is what we talked about before, which is unions and unions exist because you can't trust your managers to always do what's best. And sometimes your managers might be great people, but like ultimately at the end of the day, they're not, their job is not to protect the workers their job is to do their job it's to answer to people above them and people above them and so on and so on and i think like having those union mandated protections in place protect um the type of situation that you're talking about and and can at least ensure that like if someone is working an 18-hour day that they're paid properly for it or that they are will get restitution down the road for it um and i think that that is the the part of the equation that is just glaringly missing from the video game world
0: yeah i mean you've got all this pressure from the top of the industry, from the finance people, the publisher, whatever saying, we need the game out on this date. It's gotta be out by Christmas. It's gotta be, you gotta be able to play for 200 hours. The commercials need to look like this. That's part of our business plan. And they're going to ask for shit that's unrealistic. And you, because that's how capitalism works, right? Capitalism always wants more cheaper. It'll always demand more cheaper. And you need a counterbalance saying, no, no, No. (laughs) Just no. (laughs) It's not possible. We need to build into this business plan the humanity of the people making the thing so that they have basic standards for, uh, you know, to live, um, of pay and also of work conditions, and... That's what a union is for. The union is is there to say, "Hey, guess what? It's not worth it to build a railroad if people need to die of black lung at the age of twenty five at the bottom of a mine shaft." Mm-hmm. Uh, we're gonna say no to that and like enforce better conditions, even if you make less money. And there's something maybe similar that I I believe that is why the entertainment industry that I work in doesn't look like the video game industry today. Why it's people are
1: you know working under better conditions. It seems like the video game industry needs the same thing yeah 100% um, and again I, I should say like there might be people who work in gaming right now and are listening to this and are like wait a minute I, my job is perfectly fine because this is not like a, an overall the games industry is so big that you can't like say mm-hmm. sweeping things that apply to every single game studio and there's some game studios where people are super perfectly happy um, might have some some gripes about certain parts of it but in general are not totally mistreated um, but overall I would say standard like the bar is, is low for like what is considered good and ethical treatment in the video game industry Um, what you said reminds me of an anecdote from um, my new book Press Reset which is I talked to this guy named Zach Mumbach who was at EA um, at a a studio called Visceral Games best known for the Dead Space series um, and they shut down in 2017 and so um, this part of the book tells that story and tells the story of his life and he's fascinating because um, he and I had quite a few conversations and, and he told me that he was like he spent many years of his life working at EA he was there for like 18 years and for a long time he believed in like this workaholism where he was like hey this is a dream job um, just like Kobe Bryant I have to be in the office every day practicing my craft or else I'm going to be replaced um, I need to be there I need to be putting in the hours I need to be put- giving this my all um, and eventually he came to this revelation that is like wait a minute I'm coming in every day right next to me is the executive office where the CEO of EA Andrew Wilson who makes 30 million dollars or 20 million dollars a year whatever it is comes in Every day, every day he leaves at 5 p.m., we're all still there. The game developers are all still here. The executives are like, are like heading out to go hang out with their families at dinner time. They're making tens of millions of dollars. They're making like, like private jet money. We're all Mm -hmm. making like, if we're lucky, we're making six figures. If we're lucky, we're making like 100, 120,000. We're like, wait a minute, what the hell is going on here? And I think that fundamentally is really, I mean, capitalism as a whole has this issue, but like, uh, the, games company, the games industry especially is known for CEOs and C-suite executives that are just obscenely paid. And yeah. oftentimes when people look at the games industry and say, hey, this is, there's so much revenue here. Where is it going? The answer really is to the people at the very top. Yeah. Um, I believe the CEOs of EA and Activision, Andrew Wilson and Bobby Kotick, are, are, were on a list recently. I think it was last year or two years ago of the most overpaid CEOs across capitalism, across all industry, across <laughs> the entire US, across wow. every industry. Um, Bobby, Bobby Kodak has been bringing in about $40 million a year. Um, you see these headlines of C suite executives at Activision, EA getting paid these bonuses of like 10, 15 million dollars to come in. Um, they, they oftentimes like, like leave after a couple of years, it's really the amount of money that is getting thrown around at the upper echelons of gaming is just like unbelievable. And then at the same time, if you're at the very bottom of the totem pole, if you're in QA um, for example, which is quality assurance, which is the the part of the game company where they're testing games. So they're playing games and trying to break them and find all the bugs. Um, those people often get paid close to minimum wage. Maybe if they're lucky, mm. they'll make 20 bucks an hour um, yeah. and they're looking over and sometimes they're like living in these, expensive cities like LA they're like man I can barely afford to pay rent and the people next door the guy next door is going home at 5pm every day and making 30 million dollars a year like what the hell is going on here Um, and so yeah I mean I think that like Uh, I don't know if there's a way uh, aside from regulation and government action to cap CEO salaries and to kind of fix that problem. But at the very least, there is a way for game for game developers to get more seated at at the table and more of a voice um, and more at least a little more leverage when it comes to dealing with those overpaid executives. Yeah. And that way is called a union. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I just don't. (laughs) and there's been resistance to it. This is something I explore in the book as well. There's been some resistance to it, um, but I think the tide is turning. The last stat I yeah. saw was was more than 50% of game developers said that they felt like unionization was was inevitable and was going to happen in games. So I think the question is when and what will it look like and how will it happen um, more so than will it ever happen? Yeah, and that's a tide that's maybe turning across the country as
0: well with mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the labor movement. But cool, we got to take a really short break. When we get back, I want to ask you about some specific stories from the book and from your reporting, uh, especially about some of the, the biggest games in the world have some shocking stories behind them. So we'll be right back with more Jason Schreier. that experts are hunting down and removing your personal information every three months, then check out Delete Me. Go to joindeletemecom Adam and get 20% off for all consumer plans with the code Adam. That's joindeletemecom Adam. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills.
1: There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory
0: that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact.
1: A new year is a new chance to focus on you. You're probably already picturing yourself struggling at the gym, but not all self-help has to mean suffering. Squeeze.com is making it easier than ever to elevate your wellness by delivering a juice cleanse right to your doorstep. It's the easiest juice cleanse you'll ever do that may aid in weight loss, eliminating bloating, clearing your skin, boosting your energy levels, improving sleep, and breaking bad eating habits. Meet all your health goals from the comfort of your home. Get free same-day local delivery or fast free delivery nationwide with code WONDERY today at squeezed.com.
0: We're back with Jason Schreier. Um, so let's talk about some specific cases. Uh, one I'd like to start with, and I'm not sure if this is in the book, but I know it's a case that you've reported on, uh, is Cyberpunk 20... I forget what it is. 20 whatever it is. 20, 2077. Yeah. 2077. I was going say 2099. Why 77? <laughs> That's a weird. I know it's the original property that it's based on. Um, but okay, Cyberpunk 2077 was this for folks who didn't follow this this is one of the most anticipated games of the last decade easily they've been working on this game for a decade it's by cd project red which is one of the biggest developers in the world had some of the biggest hits in the past um and this was a feverishly anticipated game uh when the game came out though it wasn't done yet like like the like the game despite them working on it for a decade despite them crunching people for an extremely long period of time the game just like came out like unfinished like we're talking people just being like posting shocked screenshots and videos of like what the fuck is happening the company had to apologize it was pulled off of the PlayStation store and so I'm looking at this going like alright this is this big mismatch again between expectation and what's possible somehow um, and yet This is a company that was able to, like, determine its own destiny in many ways, it looks like, because of how big it was. So uh, just uh, I know that you reported on it. Um, What the hell happened and (laughs) how does this show us, like, what is, you know, going wrong with the video game industry?
1: Yeah, this is an interesting case study because I think, like, it was this confluence of factors where everything that could go wrong did go wrong um, I think that this was a game that suffered from a lot of problems that games uh, that suffered from um, one of which being they were so ambitious and had so many ideas and many of those ideas once like try they tried to execute on them um, came had problems um, for example this is a company that is about about 400 people I believe CD Project the company behind Cyberpunk um, and they tried to make a game that they hoped would take on Rockstar's Grand theft auto rockstar last i checked is about 2500 maybe 2000 people um so already it's like this mm. this group of kind of scrappy it's hard to say scrappy when it's 400 people but it's like a group that's like trying to punch way above their weight class um it was also a game where it was like they tried to do so much that was drastically different from their last game that it just was recipe mm. for disaster from the beginning their last game the witcher 3 which was beloved and um, critically acclaimed and a massive commercial success it was um, a third person like the camera is out of and like you can see your character on the screen um, fantasy role-playing game set in like a big open world with lots of villages and like not a lot of verticality a lot of horizontal um, atmosphere a lot of horizontal landscapes um, and then they tried they after that they switched to a first person so the camera um, what you see is through the character's eyes um, the a sci-fi shooter um, in A big vertical world where suddenly you have to think about like the interiors of buildings and city city streets and cars and like it's just completely different from the last thing they did. So, the beginning of this development, they announced it in 2012, but it didn't really start. Like, the game didn't really start until closer to 2016 after they had finished The Witcher because they had a very small team working on it. But, like, a lot of those people got pulled on to help them finish The Witcher, as is common in game studios, where it's like uh, often many game studios, many big game studios try to do two projects at once, but it's always impossible because whatever project is like on fire and needs to get out the door just needs all hands on deck. And so they need everybody to grab a hose. and come in. Um, so it wasn't really until like towards the end of 2016 when they were like, okay, this is what we want Cyberpunk to look like. Um, from the beginning, there were just unrealistic deadlines. They just had all this ambition and um, things did not come together the way they should have when they when they announced the game and they showed off the game in 2018, which was when it really blew people out of the water and it was like, oh my God, this massive demo of this game that looks incredible. Um, they had not done a whole lot. It was a demo that was mostly scripted and kind of for E3, um, which is a big gaming trade show. Wow. And- so it's common for demos to be kind of scripted for E3 but like this was a company that like really hadn't done a ton the demo was very long so they just spent a lot of time on it that like couldn't go towards the actual game Um, needless to say when they announced the following year that like this game was coming out in um, I think they said April of 2020 was their first release date everyone just laughed at the company because it's just like no way we're coming out in April and soon enough they delayed the game to September and then again to November and then again to December and that alone That like string of like three delays in a row kind of shows you that there was some turbulence happening behind the scenes. Yeah. But. As they were doing this, as they kept working on this game, there was a sense from a lot of people on the team, from what I've gathered, that, hey, this is not realistic. Like, we need more time. We need more time. And then there was a kind of pushback from managers and from directors who kind of had this mentality of like, we worked on The Witcher 3. It followed a same sort of direct, like a same sort of path where things were kind of very broken until the last minute. And then it all came <laughs> together. Um, we did The Witcher 3 it'll work out things will work out this time believe Style in fun. yourself it'll work out. believe in our magic our studio magic yeah. this is like a common thing it's funny The the line between disaster and massive success in the video game industry is often so so thin <laughs> it's like it's really incredible like how many games I've heard so many stories yeah. from game developers who are like yeah we thought this game was just going to be a disaster and then it all somehow came together in Cyberpunk's case it did not somehow come together and it kind of showed the the kind of hubris that comes with this mentality of like, it'll work out. It'll work out. We made the witcher. We made the witcher. It'll work out. And yeah, I mean, fundamentally, that's the problem is they just needed more time for whatever reason, whether it was financial or whether it was investor pressure, because CD Projekt is a publicly traded company. So even though they are independent in the sense that they control their own destiny, they're not because really the shareholders control their destiny, which is oftentimes if you if you're wondering what about a problem in the video game industry, it comes down to publicly traded company being beholden to its shareholders, executives having their fiduciary duty to shareholders and having to make decisions based on that based on fiscal quarters instead of based on what's good for the game but um yeah that for whatever reason CD Projekt decided we have to get this out in 2020 um, and maybe they were maybe they were contractually obligated I don't know for sure but that ultimately just really, really hurt them. And now we'll see if they can recover. I, I kind of am optimistic that they'll be able to to regain people's faith and come out with a version of the game that is better and fixed in a lot of ways. But yeah, and then there were all sorts of other like smaller issues on, uh, on the course of production, like technical problems and vision problems and, and directorial problems yeah. and personality conflicts and people coming to the company to work on this game and getting kind of driven out by like the old guard of Witcher people and and all sorts of other issues. So that's why I said it was a confluence of, like, all these – everything that could go wrong did go wrong, I think, on this game.
0: Like, every ill ill that the video game industry has sort of concentrated into this one product. And I'm just imagining working on this game, and you're crunching again. You're working insane overtime for for months on end. And then the game comes out, and the game – isn't done the the fans are like what the fuck happened and yep. you're still not done working on it because the game isn't done yet what if a movie came out and well this actually kind of happened with cats but what if a, <laughs> <laughs> what if a movie came out there's like the first example of that happening where the movie came out and the first cut of it was like whoa this is like not finished <laughs> we need to keep we need to keep working on it that must be incredibly dispiriting i have to imagine working on it Because this game was, you know, promoted as it's going to be the most immersive, it's going to have the most, like, the city is going to be incredibly dense, and it's going to be revolutionary in all these ways. Like, I really believed until the game came out that this was going to be a big step forward in terms of storytelling and the density of the open world and all these things, because that was what I had been led to believe, and... It turned out to be like at best, oh yeah, a pretty good open world sci-fi game. Is there like just a fundamental mismatch between what the public has been led to
1: expect and trained to expect and what is actually possible to make? Yeah. I mean, the standards have definitely risen so high that it's like every AAA, which is kind of industry lingo for big budget, every big budget game is expected to be everything. It's expected to be like an open world, playable for 100 hours, have a skill tree, have like a realistic graphics, have amazing dialogue. It's just like you need this checklist to hit. And I think that's a real problem. I think that like the expectations that have just continued to rise are just impossible to keep up with. Um, And it's, it's something that I think a lot of companies are like looking around at and trying to figure out how to deal with um, because it feels like we're headed towards something bad. Like it feels like maybe it's a bubble. Maybe it's just like uh, a cliff that everybody's about to run off of. Um, But it's just, it's the bar has been risen so high, especially graphically um, because everything is so much more expensive. Um, Game prices, meanwhile, haven't changed. It's been $60 for a long time. It feels like we're heading towards $70 with this new, New generation, but that hasn't officially happened yet. Um, And yeah, it's just, and of course, the all that money that games actually make is going to the very top of these game companies. So, so we're hitting this point. It it really feels like we're we're hitting hitting something, hitting some sort of crisis point um, in the video game industry. There's also such a glut of games, and it's not just. There's a new trend called games as a service. That's that's kind of newish to the video game industry, where it's this idea that like instead of just releasing game after game, you release one game and then you stick with it for ages. So Fortnite, for example, um, there's yeah. not going to be a Fortnite 2. Fortnite is just going to be continually updated for years and years. Um the problem with that trend is that every game as a service is also is is now a new form of competition for any new game that comes out. So like mm. when you release the new, when Activision releases the new Call of Duty, they're not just competing with like that Falls games like the new Battlefield or whatever else. They're also competing with Fortnite and um, like any other games that people are just continually playing. Um, PUBG or Apex Legends or Overwatch or whatever else is like a consistent multiplayer game that people are sticking with. And so, yeah, we're, we're we're definitely entering, like, a glut of games and, and this territory where it's, like, the expectations keep rising, and I don't know how much longer people will be able to keep up, game companies will be able to keep up.
0: Well, and maybe just this, this trend of, you know, what, what video games have been in many ways for the last 10 or more years of the big open-world game that you can play for 200 hours that is just so full of content, the Grand Theft Auto, the Skyrim-type game, is, like— specifically maybe a little bit unrealistic, especially because I play those games, but how many people who play them actually play them for 200 hours? I play them for 20 hours. I play, I do the main mission. I'm like, okay, I had a good time. I'm done. I'm not yep. seeing all the rest of it. So all of this extra time is being spent on this piece that is, you know, not being played by, I mean, I, I would have to see like data to see how many people are doing it, but it can't be a majority of people are like doing a hundred percent of these games versus something like Fortnite, right? Like, or an apex legends or a game like that, where you, Oh yeah, I, I play that a little bit. I dip in and see what's new. I spend a couple extra bucks to buy a new skin for my character. And then I'm moving on. is like, maybe a little bit more
1: reasonable of a pattern so the good news, by the way, for, for you and I, um, especially, and for anyone out there who like enjoys playing games, um, is that the barrier for entry for actually making a game is lower than it's ever been. And mm. therefore, there's so much creativity out there in the indie space and in the kind of mid mid space between like below the, the AAA world. And there's so many cool games you can find if you just put a little bit of time into it and you don't just settle for like whatever is hot on PlayStation Network that fall, like the new biggest new thing that has all the marketing budget. If you put the time in and you're like, and you find games like Baba Is You, which I know you enjoyed, or like Outer Wilds or Return of the Obra Dinn or like any of these other just like amazing indie experiences, you can really have such a good time. And so many of them are just shorter than like the big, 200 hour AAA experiences Um, and yeah there's a lot of there's just like so many good games out there um, that like people who I always recommend like when people are just are like more in tune with just like the big AAA game the big EA game the big Activision big Call of Duty whatever um, I always recommend that they try to put a little bit of time into just like finding something a little a little more a little more off the beaten off the beaten track um, because it's worth it and there's so much good stuff out there
0: yeah luckily we're still Still in a position where those smaller games can become hits and mm-hmm. can be profitable for the people who made them, and allow them yep. to make more games and and make a cultural impact. I'd love to hear is there a story from your book that is like ah this is this is it done right
1: this is a uh, this is a way forward there's a lot of like optimism in there like I said before Um, I I found some stories uh, some great people who just like um, went on from studio shutdowns to do these amazing things Um, like I I met this woman named Gwen Frey who um, started the video game industry in like 2009 eventually moved to Irrational Games uh, where she worked on Bioshock Infinite and she was caught up in a layoff when the studio shut down in 2014. And so she went off with a group of people and they, they started a company called The Molasses Flood um, in Boston where they made indie games. And then she said, you know what? Th- even this indie studio is not indie enough for me. I'm going to go do my own thing. And she became a solo developer and she released this really cool game called Kine. Um, that's kind of this puzzle game where you mm-hmm. play as like a walking musical instrument and um, you maneuver. Uh, it's like a platforming puzzle game. It's really cool. Um, it has some great great tunes and she found enough success through that to be able to like keep going on this solo indie path and she is like happier than she's ever been like doing her own thing and it's been really cool to to watch her career path and like watch her find success in that world um, and I think that like even though I talked about burnout earlier, I think another viable path these days, if you get caught up in a layoff, in a studio shutdown, if you decide you're going to leave the AAA world, the big budget world, um, another viable path is to go indie. And it's really worked out for a lot of people. Um, and they found like they're able to have, maybe they're not going to be the next notch, the creator of Minecraft and like become a billionaire, but, um, but they can find like financially viable paths. And that is really cool. And the fact that like the internet and the right of digital distribution has allowed for this kind of democratization of games and you don't have to be like uh, uh, selling your game at Target or GameStop in order to make a a successful game these days you can just put it up on Steam or put it up on the on the Switch eShop or whatever Um, I think that's really cool and has been really rewarding to just watch happen. I...
0: I hope you're right about that. I mean, I've played those games and I love those games. Um, and I've seen those success stories. You wrote about in your uh, first book, the the fellow who who developed Stardew Valley yes. uh, as a completely solo project, incredibly massive hit um, that uh, made, I, I don't know how much it's grossed. It must be tons of money. Yeah. Um, and and he, that was a bedroom project that he worked on all by himself for years and years and years. And then it finally came out. But I always wonder when I read those stories, Well, what about the person who spends five years on their game in their bedroom and they release it on Steam, which is the big, you know, if if folks don't know Steam, it's the big iTunes music store of games, every game possible that you can play on a PC or many on Mac are on this. And... You know, they it it becomes hard to find. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. Like, yeah. Plenty of people make a podcast. They upload their podcast. No one ever listens to the podcast. uh, Very common story. How much is that happening with games? and,
1: And is that a problem? Definitely, no, it's definitely a problem. There's a glut of games in the indie space as well. Um, there's so many games competing for your time and money all the time. But I will say, so most people are not gonna be Stardew Valley. The Stardew Valley story, I mean, he made millions and millions. Um, like like he sold 12 million copies last I checked, 13 million copies. He made a lot of money. Um, Most people are not going to be Eric Brown. and they're not going to have that story. But I think there is kind of a space between um, that and releasing your game and nobody's ever heard of it and nobody it Um, and if you have enough luck and if your game is good enough I think there is like a viable way to like maybe you're not going to make millions and millions of dollars but maybe you'll make enough to be able to do your next game and there are a lot of games another there are a lot of indie games that I cover in this book even where like maybe they're not giant smash hits but they are making enough to be able to like support the careers of a few people and to some, uh, that's really all that matters if you're like looking to pursue your own career path like like maybe it it would be nice to sell millions of copies but like at the end of the day a lot of people are happy as long as they're making enough money that they can just keep doing what they love yeah um Yes, that said, there is a very, very big caution that like there is this oversaturation and people call it the indie apocalypse. People have been talking about this for a few <laughs> years now in the indie world um, because there are just so many games and it's so hard to break out. Um, you really have to be lucky. You really have to like be right time, right place, right success story. Um, here's another example from the book is that the Molasses Flood, the company I was just, just talking about, that Gwen Frey helped start. Um, they have this game that like, did not do well when it launched, but wound up having this tail where like over time and just, build on momentum and allow them to keep going um, and in fact they were in the right place at the right time because they released a version on the Switch in 2017 just as the Switch had come out and um, nobody foresaw how successful the Nintendo Switch would be mm-hmm. um, and that fall 2017 a lot of people had it and a lot of people were looking for new things to buy because there wasn't a lot to, to play on the Switch eShop just yet and so this game The Flame and the Flood happened to be on there and happened to sell like another 200,000 copies or whatever it was just because it happened to be on the Switch at the perfect yeah. time where everybody wanted games on the Switch. So yeah, if you're lucky, if you're if you work hard enough, if you have a game that like is good or good enough, um, there is a viable career path. It's not easy and it's definitely like uh like I said, a lot of luck goes into it. But yeah, there is there is kind of that middle ground. Yeah, and it seems that maybe
0: there's a a way to make a middle class income if you get that small but devoted fan base the same way a podcast like this one is able to yeah you know, we're not we're, we're not uh, burning down uh you know the world with our you know incredible download numbers but we've got our we've got an incredibly awesome passionate fan base that listens to the show supports the show and means the show is able to keep going as a profitable going concern is there that sort of possibility for a for a game developer as well you get your your 5000 and your ten thousand fans who love the game, and and you're able to to keep going.
1: Yeah, no, a hundred percent. There's a guy I know. Um, named Zach Barth and he has a company called Zachtronics and they made like a ton of games that are just mm-hmm. incredibly niche Um, uh, games got like Magnum Opus and um, Infinifactory and a whole bunch of more games um, and they're very specific types of games they're like games that appeal to math nerds and like they're all about programming and like doing these really specific things uh, and they're never going to make bazillions of dollars they're never going to crack the mainstream but he has and his company has this like team this uh dedicated fan base that is just like, um, might not be huge. It might be maybe, I don't know, 20,000 people, maybe less, maybe more, I don't know. But um, but like they're supporting him and they allow him to continue making games, which yeah. I think is really cool. And so, yes, um, one thing that I think is true now, especially after the past year, is that the video game playing audience is bigger than it's ever been. And we're seeing like console sales um, hit record highs and um, hours on all sorts of games are, are just breaking records. Uh, the new Animal Crossing last year just sold extremely like like millions and millions of copies and so um especially because of covid like a lot of people are second home looking for things to do wound up discovering video games but really even before that i think the population of people who are into games has grown a lot over the past couple of years and that's also been really cool to see and i think that also allows for for more even though there is that oversaturation that glut of games there's a lot more people i think willing to support those games which is also cool yeah uh just to just to
0: like sort of summarize all this though, something that I think about a lot is why why is the video game industry, as opposed to other industries fucked up in so many ways, right? I mean, there's <laughs> other new industries, like say the, t- the tech industry, right? The tech industry has plenty of problems. It's going through its own unionization wave right now. But it's not like when you go look at the white collar workers at you know Google's headquarters, they're not pulling their hair out because they're all being underpaid and gross, grotesquely overworked. There are people being grotesquely overworked as part of the system generally, but it doesn't seem to be like this, Again, system where, you know, companies are closing right after they release their product or they're releasing products unfinished that are big disasters or, you know, this this like crazy boom or bust thing that's happening in video games. What is there anything like structurally about the video game industry that that causes it to have have these ills?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there are a few reasons. One that comes to mind immediately is actually the 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 disciplines involved. So if you're a programmer and you're working in Silicon Valley, um, you are getting calls all the time. You have a bazillion different places. You are you are high in demand and low in supply, and there are a bazillion places you could work and you can command a fortune for your work if you're a good programmer and you're in in Silicon Valley. And in fact, we've seen, I've seen game developers often, game programmers in the game development often move to um, tech companies to, to triple their salaries and like make these incredible bonuses and get all these incredible perks from the tech companies. I think tech companies, because that world is so competitive and there's so many of them in one place, they kind of have to um, uh, offer the best possible compensation and perks and all this other stuff in order to get the best talent. Um, And you look at games, you look at other disciplines in games, and there's a lot more supply than there is demand. Artists, a lot more people want to become artists. A lot more people want to be writers than there are Mm. jobs for writers. And so it's just a basic like capitalistic supply and demand thing. And because the demand is so much lower Uh than the supply in those other disciplines, they can get away with with a lot more. Um, And yes, so for that reason, I mean, you'll see salaries uh, for programmers at game companies look a lot higher than salaries for other disciplines. And again, it depends. Uh, There are certainly like high-level designers or high-level artists because once you have 10 years, 15 years of experience under your belt, you are more in demand, in part because so many of those other senior people have burnt out. So there are a lot of like senior spots to be filled across the video game industry. Um, So once you've like shipped a couple of games, you have a few games on your resume, you can pretty much find jobs. It's not hard to find a new job, but um, getting in in the first place, like there's so many people who want to do it and so few jobs that it's really just hard to crack in. And then once you crack in game companies can get away with not giving you the types of perks that like a Facebook or a Google has to give people
0: there's also this degree to which it's like as an entertainment product it is the biggest most expensive entertainment product we try to make as a species i mean you wrote a book right i can read that book for it'll take me eight hours to read the book i can play an eight hour video game but it took you jason schreier one you know a year or two to write the book right just your own efforts uh uh, but a video game that's a comparable length is gonna take hundreds hundreds if not thousands of people yeah um, and it and, and uh, the amount of money is, is immense. And so it's like this massive investment that has to be made to reap hopefully big rewards. And so it really does lend itself towards a boom or bust
1: economy exactly yeah no totally and it's it's this type of thing I mean people look around and say wow how, how are this, this happening this this is unsustainable this this world where like we're making such huge bets and they're so expensive and so they have to sell X millions of copies in order to actually be viable and oh my god the pressures on and so you can see why that sort of like the the risk is so high that it leads to a lot of these conditions and like uh, the crunch that we yeah. were talking about earlier I mean you're when you're when the pressure is is that high? It's like there's this expectation from the top down that, like, man, everybody better put in these hours because we gotta sell millions of copies. We gotta gotta make the best possible game. Yeah. Gotta win game of the year.
0: It starts to look like when I just pay sixty dollars for one of these games, I'm like, how is this only? like I'm going to play this for a hundred hours and I'm paying $60 for, I should pay them more. (laughs) It's just, it doesn't, there's like a mismatch there where it's like, how are they possibly making their money back on this? Um, uh, Okay. So you, you do though, seem to have some optimism about the
1: trajectory of the, of the industry, especially as, I mean, as regards labor you do. Yeah, I do. Um, and like I said, I mean, one of the chapters in Press Reset in the new book is is um, just exploring solutions. And I tried to explore a few different things. Um, and... I, I found some optimism. There are definitely some places to be optimistic. Some people who are doing cool things and trying to find ways to like change the video game industry. And like I said, I'm optimistic that like most people seem to want to unionize, seem to want to like fight for better working conditions. So I think that's going to happen at some point. Um, I'm optimistic because this remote work trend I think could catch on at companies, and I, I, I think that that'll make for mm-hmm. healthier environments and more accessible environments for people. Um, and yeah, I mean, I. I think one of the things that makes me most optimistic is the fact that like more and more people are talking about this. And over the course of my career covering the video game industry, um, 10 years ago like not a lot of people were talking about many of the issues that are so um, ubiquitous in this industry. There wasn't a ton of talk about crunch. There was some, and there had been conversations about crunch really in 2004. There was this big um, blog post called EA Spouse. So it was like an anonymous uh, whistleblower um, whose, whose husband worked for EA and she was like, I never see my husband. And she was talking about awful conditions, and that led to a lot of changes. But, um, but like, now in 2021, the conversations are so much more frequent and people are so much, people are on, on social media, on Twitter, game developers are just using their platforms to speak out about a lot of nonsense. Um, and we've seen a lot of kind of cultural reckonings at companies like Riot and Ubisoft when they, came, when it came to facing sexual misconduct and harassment and kind of toxic workplaces. And that's been heartening to see. It's been heartening to see people kind of confronting yeah. that stuff head on. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of reasons. To be optimistic. There are also a lot of reasons to be pessimistic. Uh, (laughs) so I just choose to to go. I try to be a more optimistic person and I choose to like look at the positive things. But um but yeah, I I I think that like things can get better and will get better.
0: Do you have any words of advice for my uh cousin who wants to enter the video game industry, but
1: you know, without uh going broke or going nuts? Yeah, don't (laughs) (laughs) really yeah it's just hard to recommend that anyone try to enter the video game industry these days unless they really I mean it's sort of like media right like it's so I love my job and I love being a journalist but like media is so volatile and like hard to to get into and hard to stay in and hard to deal with it it's like I just wouldn't recommend it to anyone and I think that like like ultimately if you know that you can't imagine yourself doing anything but that then you'll hear me say don't and you'll just ignore so ultimately it's good advice because if you're really set on it then you'll you just won't listen to that advice and if if you're not then you'll take the advice so it's it's win-win it's good advice either way
0: (laughs) okay fair enough jason thank you so much for being here just plug the book for us one more time if you would
1: yeah, so it's called Press Reset, Ruin and Recovery in the Video Game Industry. I'm really proud of it. Um, I'm really, I, I think it will resonate with a lot of people and I think it also will inform and entertain people, um, even though the stories are about kind of, Brutal stuff. Um, I tried to write them in a way that is hopefully entertaining. Um, They're all based on like direct interviews that I did with people. So it's all stuff that you will have not necessarily read before. Um, And yeah, it comes out on May 11th. Uh, You can get it at any bookstore. do me a favor and support your local bookstore because we need local indie For bookstores real. need more support. Um, so go and go and buy it from, from your local shop. Then it's probably been struggling over the past year and needs your support, but yeah, but, but, but you can get it anywhere. It's also an ebook. It's an audiobook. It's getting yep. translated to a bunch of different languages. So yeah. Press We're going to at- have it
0: on our podcast bookstore at factuallypod.com slash books, which cool. is through bookshop.org, so it does kick back to your local bookstore, although I do awesome. recommend even more getting it at your local bookstore if you have one that you love to support. Jason Schreier,
1: thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Adam. It's been a pleasure catching up, as usual. Well, thank you
0: once again to Jason for coming on the show. If you want to check out his book, once again, you can get it at factuallypod.com slash books. And when you do, you'll be supporting not just the show, but also your local bookstore, because our shop is through bookshop.org. Thank you once again for listening. I want to thank our producers, Chelsea Jacobson and Sam Roudman, our engineer, Andrew Carson, Andrew WK for our theme song, the fine folks at Falcon Northwest for building me the incredible custom gaming PC that I am recording this very interview on. You can find me online at at AdamConover or AdamConover.net. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week on Factually.